Hi, welcome back to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger. I'm joined today with Steve Kim and Wesley Huff. <laughs> welcome to the show, guys. <laughs> what was that pause? It's uh, you sounded uh, reluctant to have us. <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking about calling you friends or colleagues and. Just, but then you double guess yourself because you're not sure which one we are. <laughs> we could be a friend, but you're not I quite guess, sure yet. But we're definitely <laughs> colleagues. It depends, I guess. <laughs> no, guys, it's good to good to have you, even though I don't know what to call you. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with friends, friends and colleagues. Um, so listen, today we got a spicy topic. Gonna be talking on a subject that I've been thoroughly confused by for quite some time. The question is, is math racist? And I hear this more and more. And I got to I gotta be honest, when I first heard it, I, I was very confused. And, and I very much had, you know, the idea that people were somehow thinking that math is somehow intrinsically racist, which, which is odd, because let's just be really clear here. Um, math is not racist. Uh, people are racist. Uh, and the question that needs to be asked is how and if math is being used in racist ways. So this is a topic that has been being discussed a lot this summer, especially with school kicking off, because in Toronto, in your neck of the woods there, Wes, there has been a number of articles that were that were getting a lot of uh, attention in that the government was, you know, I'm not, I'm not even sure what to say to this, that the, the, the school systems were going to address this idea that math is racist or were affirming that math is racist. Like what have you been hearing Wes and what are the articles you've read on the subject? Like set me straight on this. Well, I think the idea was that the Ontario school board and the, particularly the TDSB, the Toronto District School Board, was going to be rolling out a new math program. The math program, from what I've read, was, uh, you know, quite a bit older, considered a little bit out of date. And so they were updating it. And as part of this update and rollout, they had components of it that had to do with anti-racist and anti-oppressive teaching and learning opportunities and colonial contexts of present-day mathematics and education. Whatever you want to do with those types of headings and terms. But the idea was that not only were they updating maybe, you know, what you'd think of when you think of math, algebra, you know, long division, but they were adding components of anti-racist policy within it. You know, how has mathematics been a force to repress or oppress individuals of color. So it, it's not something I think you would expect when you're looking through your math curriculum. Um, but this was the idea in, in, in what I read. And actually, Steve, I think a, a couple of months ago, even sent me the outline curriculum that had this sort of heading. Um, although, and feel free to uh, chime in, uh, Andy, uh, there's been a revision recently. Uh, well, it, it's been interesting to see because I, you know, I was, I was Googling this whole issue that that has been really kind of bubbling, if you will, during the summer. If you haven't heard a lot about it, it's because the government there in uh, Ontario has just quietly kind of swept this under the rug and is is no longer pursuing this idea that that math is racist. From uh, what I've read, Steve, what what have you been uh, reading and seeing? Not a whole lot. Just like you were saying, other than the initial sort of 
burst of, I think what I've seen is a lot of sort of incredulity. Because I mean, when you hear that sentence, math is racist, or hear the question, is math racist? It just sounds ridiculous in a lot of ways. Like what's so racist about one plus one equals two? But I think, like you said earlier, Andy, it's not so much mathematics itself that's racist, but how it's been used how, according to the claims of some proponents, how math has been used to, you know, keep certain students of color, let's say, you know, sort of locked into their oppression or something along those lines, right? So it's not so much. So when I hear it, I mean, it just sounds odd to me. Even the the sentence or the question seems a little misleading uh, because it's one thing to say, how has math been used as a tool of oppression, that's a that's a very sensible question. Whether you agree with that or not, whatever your take on it is, it's it's a very different thing to say. Is math racist? That's very confusing. Like you said earlier, misleading even. So, well, uh, want me to throw a wrench into that? Is I just pulled up a quote from Lori Rubel of Brooklyn College. She tweeted recently. So she's a mathematics professor. The idea of math being culturally neutral is a myth because two plus two equals four reeks of white supremacy and patriarchy. So, (laughs) right. I honestly, I don't even know what to do with that. I really don't. That those sort of statements are so nonsensical to me. I like that. Here's the problem. I can't help but wonder if that person even knows what they're talking about or have they just read a bunch of sound bites and you know, come come up with this. Or, and this is one of the things that perhaps is more accurate of what's happening. They have a certain idea of what they mean by mathematics. They have a certain idea of what they mean by racist. And they are defining those terms in very specific ways, in ways yeah. that I am not understanding them traditionally. They So they've got their, they're operating within their own cultural language in whatever department I'm, you know, or whatever academic department, you know, department they're in. They're using it in those sorts of ways. That's the only way I can even make sense of somebody saying something like that. That's the that's one of the biggest issues um, with things like critical race theory, for example, is the all the sort of new ways in which terms are being being defined and used. Right, that use of terminology to me is very uh, problematic because what we have traditionally meant by racist. And what proponents of critical race theory mean by racist are very different, right? Because when we think, when we typically say racist, what we've meant by that is, you know, like if you think of one race as better than another or inferior to another, you know, simply on the basis of the skin tone, let's say, or, you know, the Prototype is always the KKK, right? With the bedsheets on their heads, basically, and and whatnot. But what proponents of critical race theory mean by racist is if you've been raised in a system that is inherently racist and you imbibe its values, even though you may not be overtly racist like that, you are racist by virtue of the fact that you imbibe these values, Right, you you look at things in a certain way. You have blind spots and those kinds of things. So Neil Shenvey, I thought, pointed this problem out very well when he said, "Listen, what you're doing is you're taking a term that already has an established meaning. You're using it in a new way. It, you know, all the while assuming that everybody else 
should just follow that new meaning, right? So one quick example is if I use the word moron to refer to French-Canadian hockey players, let's say, don't be surprised that when French-Canadian hockey players are offended by that. I mean, I can explain to them, no, 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 you don't understand. Moron doesn't mean that you're stupid. It just means French-Canadian hockey players. See what's, what the problem is. I'm using a word, moron, that has an established meaning. I'm using it in a different way, and I'm expecting other people to follow suit. So this, this is one of the problems. I think, I think you're pinpointing the problem correctly. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. So notice then what happens if I want to have a conversation on that subject. I've got to do a whole bunch of research. And, and, and by the way, for the show, I did. I was watching different YouTube videos and trying to get an understanding of what is being meant by math and racism. Because it's interesting in different YouTube videos that you'll watch is, is people that are advocating this are interviewed they'll they they'll say oh listen i i don't mean 1 plus 1 you know you know equals racism but i mean and then again and then they start to unpack you know the literature that they've read or the seminars that they've been to and how they're specifically understanding these and that that becomes incredibly problem, problematic for us to have a conversation and here's the concern i have the concern i have is is what happens is people hear something nonsensical like math is racist which is, by the way, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, uh, math isn't racist. People are racist. And the problem is there are racist people, and there are racist ideas that are floating around out there. It's one of the reasons why I want to talk about the show. I want to talk on the subject on the show, because what can happen then is people would, could just dismiss this entirely and say, that's just stupid. That's ridiculous. These people are are out to lunch sort of thing. And we could miss that there actually are conversations happening right now that are incorrect, unhelpful, and I would actually say are, in fact, using math in racist ways. And I think part of this problem is we've developed an understanding of what critical thinking is that isn't critical thinking. So um, even just looking up the definition, critical thinking is the application of logical principles, rigorous standards, standards of evidence, and careful reasoning to the analysis and discussion of claims, beliefs, and ideas. One of the things that I've heard Jordan Peterson say recently is that critical thinking should be dividing the wheat from the chaff, but far too many people apply it by just burning down the entire field. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the problem when we start to use things like race or uh, social division or gender ideology, and we start to view that as the lens by which we view everything else. That all of a sudden things start to come under friendly fire that should have never had a target placed on them to begin with. And so if we're looking at the entire world through this stratification of race, then the things that are gonna get caught in the crossfire are going to be things that really have nothing to do with race. Mathematics, has it been used, like, like you've said, um, to maybe be held against an individual who may not be able to apply it, potentially. I can't necessarily think of any examples, but I'm sure that that's happened. But is it in and of itself racist? I mean, that that seems a little bit silly. But when you start to view everything through the lens of race, then, of course, you're going to throw in mathematics there because, you know, 
everything is is has a racist conclusion or a race angled conclusion to it and what you're saying Wes I I want to I want to dig into this because I want to circle back to a lot of what you're talking about there because we you know it's it's easy to get lost in the these arguments that then become um political and then you know on it's this pendulum swing where where math can be called racist right and then and now it's got to be used because because that's been claimed now it's got to be used in these social justice ways so now instead of somebody coming to school like my child who just started high school instead of them coming to learn arithmetic they instead are coming to learn morally motivated ideological ways of using math like it's not actually solving the problem so so before we go any deeper, I know there's some of you that might be you know listening to this going, Andy, what do you mean that math in fact can be used in racist ways? And and this was this was interesting to me. In my, as many of you know, I wrote a book called uh, Reclaimed: How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. And and as I was doing research for that book, I was beginning to come across literature that was very concerning to me. And so the person that I, I came across was James Watson. Now, some of you will will know him. He is uh, famous for winning the Nobel Prize for the um, the discovery of the double uh, helix structure of of DNA in 1953. And what he said in 2007 um, for the the Sunday Times newspaper, I think, begins to help you to understand one of the issues that's going on in mathematics. And I suspect is what is fueling a lot of this rhetoric to say that math is racist. Now, this isn't going to settle all of the issues from what I've been seeing, uh, but this does seem to be foundational. He says this, that he is inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa. Okay, so Watson says, All our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says, not really. There is no firm reason to anticipate that the intellectual capacities of peoples geographically separated in their evolution should prove to have evolved identically, are wanting to reserve equal powers of reason as some universal heritage of humanity will not be enough to make it so. Now, you could imagine that Watson received a lot of backlash from that. In fact, the backlash was so severe that he was um, the first first Nobel laureate to ever sell his medal for financial reasons. But that did not change his opinion. Uh, in 2019, a documentary called American Masters Decoding Watson uh, was released on PBS, and they then circled back on this question and, and, and asked him whether or not his views had changed. And notice what he said in reply. He said, no, not at all. I would like for them to have changed, that there be new knowledge which says that your nurture is more important than nature but I haven't seen any knowledge. And there's a difference on the average between blacks and whites on IQ tests. I would say the difference is it's genetic. Notice notice that, because this is is the key right here, that there is, on average, 
a difference between blacks and whites on IQ tests. And thus, given these statistics, which is math, right, this then becomes an argument whites are more intelligent than blacks. You know, when I hear arguments like that, I can't help but think you have to wonder whether the metric itself is valid. I mean, that's the question that uh, gets raised for me. So, for example, you you know the um, the book Better Angels of Our Nature by Steve Pinker, for example, that uh, goes on to show how the world is actually getting better, not worse. And he uses all kinds of metrics like violent crimes, wars, and those kinds of things. And one of the things that was pointed out is, yeah, but, you know, th those metrics might be good, but what about other metrics, right? Because it depends on the metric that you pick. If you were to, say, include things like anxiety and depression, or if you include things like abortion, or if you include other, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, how might the picture change then? So the metric and the validity of the metric, uh, I think, is key. So I, I don't know if the IQ is even a, a good metric to measure those kinds of things. Well, that's one of the things that I want to talk about, because I, I definitely have some opinions on that that I would I want to share. Before I do, though, let me just back up a little bit more before Watson to kind of lay down another layer of foundation to what's happening here. Um, for those of you interested, uh, there was a book published by Charles Murray and Richard J. Uh, Hernstein. Now, Hernstein died shortly after uh, or, or before the book was even published. So he really hasn't received the criticism because he's dead. Uh, but... Murray received, you know, the lion, the all, all of the criticism uh, for a book that they published called The Bell Curve. And in this uh, book, this is one of the, the things that they're um, arguing is that uh, with regards to IQ, that there is a difference between blacks and whites, uh, skinned people. Now, when when I first began to hear about this, I, I thought, honestly, this is the most ridiculous thing uh, that I've ever heard. Yet, the part that concerns me, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this, is I keep seeing it coming up. And I keep reading authors that are citing it and wanting to give this um, time. Uh, and, and, and that's fine. Of course, if people want to to discuss this, I think we should be able to talk about it and to discuss these findings and to say, hey, is this valid or not? We we shouldn't just say, hey, math is racist, and we're we're not even going to talk about this, and then I'm going to start off on some social justice campaign to politicize math in the other way or something to that effect, because uh, maybe we'll get to that in a moment with where things are kind of heading. But before we do, I just want to show you just a modern example, a current, I should say, example of where I just recently read this. And I know, uh, Wes, you you read this as well um, in the book, The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. Uh, so Charles Murray and Douglas Murray aren't related. But uh, in Douglas Murray's book, I was I was actually shocked that he brought this into the discussion. I think maybe on uh, to his credit, maybe one reason he's bringing it into the discussion is because he's like, hey, we should at least be able to talk about these things, these findings and, and discuss them. But at the same time, 
I got the distinct impression that he was advocating uh, for this distinction. And and if 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 anything didn't nuance this enough, nor did he provide any sort of pushback against uh, the bell curve and, and Murray's findings. Uh, this is what he writes in his book, The Madness of Crowds. He says, the criticism of the bell curve demonstrated why almost nobody wanted to go over the evidence that suggests that intelligence test scores vary with ethnic group and that just as some groups score higher on intelligence scores, others must score lower. This, of course, is not to say that everybody in such groups does, as Murray and Hernstein were at pains to point out repeatedly. The difference within racial groups were larger than the difference between them. Yet those who have surveyed the academic literature on IQ differentials across racial groups appreciate better than anyone that the literature in the area is, as Jordan Peter has Jordan Peterson has said, an ethical nightmare, and it had, and it was a nightmare which almost everybody seemed very keen to steer clear of. Okay, if you're interested and you want to go down this rabbit trail, you can see YouTube videos between Jordan Peterson and Douglas Murray as they talk about this, and then uh, if you if you want to continue down that rabbit trail, you can also uh, watch or listen uh, to interviews between Charles Murray and Sam Harris on this subject, and you can explore this even more. Uh, what, what I would like to do, though, is just to take a moment to poke holes at this, because I think that there are so many holes. And again, this is one thing that I like I really appreciated Douglas Murray's book, The Madness of Crowds. I, I think he had a lot of really important things to say in that book. I would say, though, this was not one of them. Uh, I would say this was probably him, his most poorly thought out uh, idea in the book, and nor does he provide adequate counter examples to what's being argued for. Now, th- Steve, it's good that you're on the show, uh, you know, because Steve, you're Asian, and so Asians are the smartest. Again, on this bell curve, on average, score higher on these uh, IQ tests. So Asians then are the smartest, Black the, the least smartest, and I guess Wesley us white guys are somewhere in between. Yeah, I've I always kind of found it interesting whenever there's this discussion of you know is math racist and and those kinds of things. Whenever there is a a discussion of race, you know the canonical bad guys are you know the straight white European men, right? Um, and and yet when it comes to math, it's just like, man, like nobody's talking about Asian privilege here, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so I've always found that interesting. Just If I could just pause you real quick there, I think mm-hmm. you made a uh, note of something that's probably important that we should mention quickly here. There is some historical baggage, though, around white colonialism. There's no doubt about that. When we think about people like Charles Darwin as an example, Uh, now his book uh, *Origin of Species* was was not overtly racist, but the his next book, *The Descent of Man*, absolutely was. And and in my book *Reclaimed*, I I share a number of quotations from that book that talk about you know the the white European as the summit of you know civilization. Right, and and that this would ultimately form what's referred to as colonial science, 
which would use evolutionary biology to determine which races uh, or and tribes were more evolved and thus more intelligent and better fit to lead than another. Now, just a quick historical footnote, just to, just so you know how this worked in practice. Places like Belgium, um, when they came to own in colonialism, they came to own uh, Rwanda. They then used colonial science, which I know this is ridiculous, but this is what they did. It's as ridiculous as the conversation on IQ tests, but they would they would measure people's craniums and their noses, and they would determine which tribe was more evolved than another tribe. And so, as you can imagine, they determined that the Tutsis were more evolved than the Hutu, so they put the Tutsis in charge of the Hutu, which mistreated them, and the history that you and I know, it didn't take long until there were more Hutu than Tutsis, and we had a terrible genocide that ensued. So that's just one quick example of how colonial science played itself out. And so when people kind of point to that white colonialism with that frustration, it's like, yeah, there is good reason to be frustrated at one level, but yet you have to ask yourself, what is the worldview that is being embraced and that is pushing this idea of evolutionary biology and that one race such as Asian is higher? That's how we see things now, right? It's not the white, you know, the white guys that are the highest, it's the Asians that are the highest, they're the smartest. And then you have this um, hierarchy that descends from there. I think it also brings into question the conversation about what we mean by intelligence. Yeah. Oh, and I want to go there. Uh, let, let, let me just pause you real quick, because sure. let me let Steve finish what he was saying, and yeah, and then come back to that. Yeah, no, Andy, I think that's a good point. We don't want to downplay that. And we kind of talked about this on our episode on the Scopes trial, too, like the, and the kinds of racist things that were being taught in public schools at the time on the basis of this sort of, you know, scientific racism, if you will. Um, let's just let's just remind listeners about that. Yeah. Uh, th- this is an aspect about evolutionary biology that has been quietly swept under the historical rug. Uh, it, it's often thought, oh, people had a problem with evolution simply because they didn't know, like particularly Christians, because they didn't know how it was going to fit within Genesis chapter one sort of sort of thing. But in fact, when you read the literature, what you see is that there's a much more nuanced conversation happening with regards to eugenics, which is at the heart of what we're talking about here, that some races are better born than others, that was fueling and that, and you see this particularly in the colonialism, was giving scientific justification to racism. And so as for me, I mean, obviously there are individual kind of differences, right? Like people look at me and they assume certain things about me. Uh, And some of those assumptions are correct. For example, they look at me and they go, oh, you must like ramen noodles. I do love ramen noodles. You must like rice. I do love rice, right? And And let's be honest, Steve, you are Korean and you do love some kimchi. I do love kimchi. You love a lot of kimchi. (laughs) I I love me some serious amount of kimchi. Um, (laughs) And Andy can't stand it, so it's the worst. It is the worst. (laughs) Um, I'm with you, Steve. Kimchi's okay. Yeah, thank you, thank you for that support. Um, Come on, man. (laughs) 
But but there are certain things like, you know, oh, Steve is Asian, so he must be good at math. Uh, not really. I barely passed math 12 in BC, right? And But a lot of that had to do with the life circumstance that I was in at the time, right? So what I what I'm trying to say here is when we talk about IQ tests and things like that, to me, like it, it seems really difficult to tell like how much of that actually is because of the social circumstances rather than genetic traits, right? I mean, I'm sure there is a way to tell, but I mean, given my experiences, I'm just like, yeah, the reason I did poorly in math had nothing to do with my my intelligence, um, it had everything to do at the time with my circumstances. Um, yeah. Steve, that, that is such a huge question. I know, I know, uh, Wes, you, you've brought this up before. Uh, you know, what, what even is IQ? Oh, well, and I think there's a big discussion of nature versus nurture in that, in terms of what our culture values and like how we're raised, um, you know, I've I've seen uh, living in, you know, multiple countries and go, going through multiple different uh, educational programs here overseas. Uh, I was uh, I went to school in Ontario and in B.C. at different parts of my life. And there are different emphases on, on different things. And I think that plays into how it nurtures your development for particularly one area over another. I, th- I think that there's there's perhaps two things happening here. I think you guys have your finger on the first one, that there is cultural influences. And then I think the second one is there's personal influences as well. What, what do you actually value and in, in care about? Like, for example, for me growing up... Uh, I would argue that I had virtually no cultural influences on education or whatever. I remember specifically that my family, I didn't do very well in high school. And my family just said to me, Andy, just graduate, uh, you know, ju- just graduate, you know, and then get a job. And, and, you know, cause really I would say what was culturally valued as an American living in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, was to get a house, get some sort of job in which you could retire at some point and, you know, it's, it's that, that sort of mentality. And yeah. personally, I, at that point, had not uh, given my life to Jesus. I was very much looking for purpose and meaning. I was very convinced in my early life that life was meaningless. So I cared nothing for school. Nothing. If you would have given me an IQ test, I would have ranked at the bottom. At the absolute bottom. and But it had nothing to do with intelligence. It had everything to do with the fact that I didn't give a rip uh, and thought life was meaningless. And it, so it's interesting for me. This is why I think IQ tests are so silly. And when I read these sorts of things, I think this is so ridiculous. Because when I became a Christian and all of a sudden I thought life did have meaning and purpose, now all of a sudden I was very interested in school. Now all of a sudden I poured myself into what I was studying and now I would go on to do, you know, BA, a master's degree, and I just finished my my PhD. Um, recently, I just passed my uh, my defense, and somebody could look at me and go, "Oh, wow, <clears throat> Andy, you know, he has a PhD. He must be so intelligent." Now, first of all, Steve Wesley and the they know all the dumb things I say, first of all. So they're like, well, that's, I don't know about that. You know, we, like, we know you're not fooling anyone with that, uh, with all those, those letters behind your name. That's right. And, and listen, because this is one thing that I wanted to bring up with you guys, because I think it's important for people to hear this. Wes, you're currently doing your PhD. 
I finished mine. Steve's in the process of starting his. We've all done a lot of education. Uh, and and we, we can all do some academically impressive things uh, of a variety of nature. But here's the thing that I think people need to hear that haven't been in, in the academic circles that we've been in. And that is that this is another reason I think IQ tests are so dumb. Is I've never met a genius. I really haven't. The closest I thought I was going to come to meeting a genius was William Lane Craig. Uh, but my entire time, and I've met people that have gone to Harvard. I have friends that have that have gone to the top Ivy League schools. And I'm telling you, I've yet to meet a genius. You know what I've met, though? I, I have met hardworking people, period. And this is the thing that I find so fascinating. So, for example, let me just let me just tease this out for you, how it works. I've got friends that are in law school. I've got friends that have become lawyers. We'll just use that one as an, as an example. And to get into law school, and I also got friends, obviously, that are in medical school and, and whatever. You got to take a, a specific exam to get into medical school, to get into law school. And you got to rank high in that, depending upon what university you're going to get into. And, and, and then you go off into law school. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, think about all your friends that have gotten into those programs and they've taken those tests. What do they do? They study a lot. And if they have the money, they pay tutors. And they take classes on how best to prep and take those exams. You guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's not like they just woke up, go, I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to go take this test and I'm going to go do great on it. Those people are very, 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 very rare. And I haven't even met one yet. What I have met, those people that work really, really, really hard, pay money, get tutors, practice exams online a lot. And then, do you you see what I'm saying? I know I'm getting fired up here, but... Yeah, That's just, an IQ test. Yeah, let, let me give you a quick example. You know, where I come from in South Korea, actually my uh, one of my cousins, he decided to like take a break from high school for a year because he just couldn't handle the pressure. Because when you're in the grade 11, 12 kind of range and you're looking to go to university in Korea, often this is what your schedule looks like, especially around exam time. So you go to school at about 8 in the morning and your curriculum will take you, school curriculum will take you to about 4 p.m. And then especially around exam time, you have this sort of self-directed study time that goes to like 9 p.m. Okay, and then when you're done with that, right, then you go to these uh, private academies called Hagwans where you study more till like 11 o'clock or midnight and then you come home and then you have to do homework, Right. And then you wake up the next day and you do it all over again, right? And their their work ethic is crazy. Now, my my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, they they were the ones who had to live through right the Japanese colonial rule and then the Korean War, and just to survive, they had to work day in and day out. They didn't know what a break was, and that gets filtered down to us because they always told us, hey, listen, the reason we're doing so much work is for you guys to study in school and succeed, and that's why the pressure to study is so high, and so a lot of students from when they come from Asia, right, this is the sort of sort of work ethic that they're bringing with them, and if you've seen those Asian students in your schools who gets upset at getting like 93% on a test, right? That's the background they come from. When I first came here, like I got upset that I got, what, 95 one time, right? Because the, the expectations were different. And I would see my other friends around me, 
um, who are not Asian who would be happy with the fact that they got 86, for example. Like, it's just a different kind of different levels of expectations, culturally different sort of, you know, push. I, and we bring I that. Think that the, I think that is a great example of the cultural influence. So again, yeah. you have that cultural influence, you have that personal influence. So here's something interesting, Steve. I don't know if you saw this recently. There's been quite a bit going on in the news with regards to China. And one of the issues that the Chinese government has right now is young people that are starting to rebel against that pressure and starting mm. to go, you know what? I don't know if I want to do that anymore. I don't know. Why, why am I pushed so hard and studying so hard and working so hard? And so it's interesting because right now they've kind of got this new cultural revolution, if you will, going on. Where like, I've kind of had it with all this pressure you're, you're putting on us. But I hope that it's starting to become obvious that if you're doing an IQ test and then you're going to start rating people accordingly, I mean, that's one of the things, again, that this literature is not is not nuancing cultural, you know, issues, personal interest, and, and, and sorry, personal issues. So here, let me just give you guys a quote for how ridiculous this gets. In an interview that Charles Murray had with Sam Harris, he said this, with regards to employment, you are better off to have an IQ score than an interview grades degrees. It is the single most informative um, score of a person. So he's saying, if you're going to give me one thing to determine how I'm going to hire somebody, IQ score. I, I think this, and and maybe I'm a little bit more of a centrist on this. I think maybe, I think IQs are an important component, but not the most important component. And they might be a facet of the multifaceted item. Um, and I think, speaking to what you were saying... Tease, tease, that out, tease that out for me. Well, I think there could be a benefit to understanding how one system of evaluation contributes to your overall intelligence. But making that the be-all and end-all is neither wise uh, nor useful in a real world situation, because I think we all know people who have wor real world smarts that may not necessarily be what we would categorize as typically, you know, book smart. Um, and that may or may not mean that they have a, ha a high IQ. But I think uh, I think I actually have met one person who is a genius who I, I mean, I don't really understand how IQs sort of fit on the scale. So he did once tell me his IQ, but I think it went over my head because I don't know. It sounded high, but I don't know what mine is. So I, I don't know how high that is. Let me ask you with regards to this person with a high IQ, though, because I know some people that you would say have a high IQ. Uh, and one of my friends that would, again, have a high IQ in that sense, he would do well on that test, is terrible at building anything in his house. He can't fix the plumbing in his house. He can't change the oil in his car. Like the guy is completely inept. Uh, mechanically, he is is terrible, right? And so you're like, well, who says that a certain type of test and scoring high on a very certain type of test now is going to be how we're going to quantify intelligence? Because I mean, it would seem to me that it would depend upon when you're living whether or not that would actually be a benefit or not. And it doesn't take into account a much more uh, rounded view of, of a person, uh, intelligence-wise. I mean, 
And here's one other quick thing that, again, is just so problematic. If we say with regards to employment, then an IQ test, they're going to say, oh, that's that's going to be the determining factor. I mean, well, what again, what are you judging there? Are you judging their intelligence or are you perhaps actually judging their work ethic that they were willing to work really hard to prep for that IQ test and they got all this tutoring and help and to learn? Because honestly, it's amazing to me how much it is learning how to take these kinds of tests as well that then led to this positive outcome. And so you think that, oh, this has to do with intelligence. Well, it could, in fact, just be work ethic. Well, and that's where I think part of the idea of, for those who don't know, IQ stands for intelligence quotient. And I think that that might be a bit of an outdated idea um, because there was a, a reason for coming up with this number that was evaluated through standardized testing that I think we realize now doesn't, as you said, Andy, give a well-rounded picture of the individual. Um, and I, uh, when you were talking about, you know, you, you doing your PhD, Andy, uh, one of the things I realized when I started to do my PhD work and interacting with other PhD students is that none of us, and I, there are obvious exceptions to this rule, but I would say the vast majority of individuals who I know who are doing their PhD are were never good in high school. I wasn't good in high school. I didn't do well. I wasn't motivated. And I think sometimes I wonder whether it was just because I was bored and maybe if I was more motivated to do it, maybe I would have done better. Um, I would have been considered, often wondered that myself. quote unquote, smarter. But I just, I didn't care. It is really work ethic. If I, if I, if I, if you, if we talk to people who are doing doctoral studies uh, within different fields, I think it, it comes down to someone really finding what they're interested in and then jumping down that hole maybe a little bit too far sometimes. Um, and and that's what it is. It's it's a combination of interest plus work ethic, like you said. Uh, now, does that mean that there aren't individuals out there uh, who are the Einsteins who actually do have a ridiculous high, high IQ and that contributes? Um, yeah. I mean, I read some things about uh, Bruce, Bruce Metzger, who's one of the, the most influential Greek biblical scholars within the last two centuries and you read stuff about what he's doing and and writing about when he's a teenager and you're like well that's obviously someone on a different level uh, and those people do come up but what we're dealing with when we start to evaluate iqs is we're just looking at one facet and then we're trying to expand that out to everything else and that's where when we're talking about something like this this uh curriculum is that we're it's still an overemphasis of how has something like IQ played into the conversation a little bit too much and then making that the be all and end all of the conversation and then framing it in our particular uh, instance through the lens of race to to highlight that point i mean the fact is you can find these outliers in any of the races whether they be asian caucasian black you name it some of the smartest people i know uh, have black skin. Uh, to me, what what's happening though is like what you're getting at here, Wes, is that it, that it's being generalized, and then specific uh, ideas are being promoted from that. That I think is just woefully ignorant, and that is um, that that in fact I think is dangerous. I, I to to 
kind of promote this this eugenics idea uh, that certain races are are more well born than others. Now, I, I want to be clear about something though, from a Christian perspective, that perhaps I haven't stated clear enough yet. Although I believe all people are equal under God as having been made in his image and likeness. I do not by any stretch believe that all people are equal in their ability. So let me just say that again. I think everyone, I think all humans are equal in their value. I, I don't think they're all equal in their ability uh, because the fact is that we celebrate, for example, as we did the summer, the Olympics, that some people are faster than other people. And we celebrate that, you know, there's some people that can jump higher and farther than other people. And the fact is, we don't all look the same. We don't all have the same height. We don't all have the same size. We don't all have the same intelligence. Uh, like, depending upon how you're going to quantify that one, because I think that one's a line, a, a, a land, landmine of how you're even going to uh, go about that. But let's just take, let's just take the Olympics as an example. Uh, you could do, you could do this with this, and this is how ridiculous it is. You could say, "Look, in the Olympic, there there are no black people swimming. I hardly there's hardly any." And all my black friends laugh about this because, in Asian as well, Steve, you know it. Like, there's not a lot of Asian people swimming. And when you go to Asia, my time in Asia, whenever I go uh, snorkeling or scuba diving, they they're all wearing life jackets, snorkeling in the like in the ocean. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to drown in the ocean? It's salt water. You bob, like, and with a, a snorkel, but they've still got life jackets. To say then that, that Asians can't swim, that black people can't swim, or they're not as good as swimmers as white people, again, like, that, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, it, it comes back into this conversation. What's happening culturally there? What's happening personally? Because I'll tell you right now, I don't really, I, I enjoy snorkeling, but I don't really have zero interest in winning a swimming race. Do you guys, do you guys understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, I, I hear you. Um, in fact, I would, I would maybe take what you said and go exactly the opposite way, not necessarily contradicting you, but just to highlight a different aspect of it. Um, I, I believe, yeah, different people have different abilities, but we're all made in the image of God, right? So sometimes, like when I hear about an issue like this, about intelligence and things like that, sometimes I wonder, why is it so important for us that we are smart? Well, it's because we value it, right? We put a lot of stock in uh, intelligence, uh, and many of us define who we are by our intelligence. We want to be smart, right? We, we want to be quote unquote, more evolved, right? Which, by the way, doesn't even make a whole lot of sense to me in a naturalistic world to say that somebody is more or less evolved. All you can do is change. You can't say it's, you know, one evolution kind of is better than another. But anyway, um, why is it so important for us to be smart or intelligent? Because we, we put a lot of value in it culturally. But as a Christian, I look at that and I go, I don't, it doesn't matter to me how smart you are, how intelligent you are. I don't really care what your IQ is. What is important to me is the fact that you are somebody made in the image of God and so deserve my decency and, and love, right? Regardless of your abilities. And, and that's the, 
that's one really critical legacy that our Judeo-Christian worldview has left the Western civilization and anywhere that the Western civilization has touched. Um, you know, the Western civilization may not have lived it out all that well in many historical periods, but that idea, oh, right, that we're all made in the image of God has done the world a great service. Well, and that's something you get uniquely within the Christian worldview. Uh, you don't get that in any other religious or secular worldview uh, other than Judeo-Christianity. Um, even the other great monotheistic religion, Islam, doesn't have a concept of the Imago Dei in, in the same particular way. Man isn't created in God's image. And that's actually one of the justifications historically for things like slavery is that there actually was a hierarchy within individuals. The Quran calls Muslims the best of all people and then alludes to Christians and Jews being the worst of all people. And that's been used historically for the justification of slavery in the Islamic world. One of the things I like that, uh, um, I, I believe it's Tom Holland, the historian who I brought up before, wrote, wrote the book Dominion, uh, is he talks about the fact that all religious worldviews in one way or another are based on a survival of the fittest type of idea. You know, you have this group of individuals, uh, this, these royals, these kings, these rulers at the top, and then a stratification of people underneath. And that the way that Christianity flips that is it says that the, the it's not survival of the fittest, it's the fittest sacrificing himself for the survival of the weakest. And that God stepping out of eternity and into humanity in Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, that reverses the narrative because all of a sudden the fittest, you know, the creator of the universe, he he brings himself low. And, and that not only shows the intrinsic worth of every individual of having that mark of the image of their creator. Um, but it gives no justification to treat anybody in terms of their their intrinsic worth and value. You know, like you said, Andy, we all have different, we have different skills, we have different uh, aspects to us. Um, some are taller. A lot of people are taller than me, that's for sure. Uh, some are, you know, faster, stronger, uh, more, quote-unquote, intelligent in different ways. But at the end of the day, even though, you know, we would say uh, a king has more political value than me, he doesn't have more intrinsic human value than me because we're both on the same level as humans. Now, now let me just throw this last piece into this discussion. And that is the spiritual component of what's taking place here. Because as I already shared from my own story, I didn't really care about life until I became a Christian. It, it, was, it was then that life became infused with meaning and purpose. And, and then all of a sudden, learning became alive to me. And I wanted to learn and I wanted to study. And I would very much say that I changed as a person through Jesus. This is a problem, though, on what worldview you're operating from when you're going to talk about something like IQ. Because if you're purely working from a naturalistic point of view, it's it's very reductive in that the, the defining feature of, of you is biological. It's, it's your DNA. It, it's it's those, you know, things that can be reduced and studied under a microscope. And, and so 
you you then get these sorts of ideologies such as uh, evolution or eugenics and, and ways of quantifying people on a bell curve that seeks to define you. And by the way, in my own education, part of my um, in my in my own education, one of the things that I sought to do was, uh, you know, I came to Canada to do my BA, but then I went to the United States to Biola to do my master's degree. And then I went to the UK to do my PhD, and I, and I wanted to get a feel for the different education systems be- between them. And one of the things I began to realize is how important it is to have within an education system this bigger worldview that allows for the supernatural, if you will, and that isn't specifically reductive in its quantifying of people because it doesn't take into account those other aspects of who we are. For example, this is one of my biggest complaints with the UK's education system, and my friends from the UK have heard me critique this before, but their system is very reductive. They test children from a very early age to put them onto very specific tracks that are either going to lead them into uh, that are going to lead them into a specific career. It's going to either lead you right out of high school into a specific trade, perhaps, or it's going to lead you on to further education. And these tests become your defining feature. And so it's interesting, in the UK, they take education a whole lot more seriously than, uh, say, the United States does. Uh, the students do. And what I find there is because the students are understanding, at least the parents are understanding, there's obviously social pressures happening, that your school and these tests you're taking are going to directly relate to what you can and can't do in society and where where you're going to go, how much money you're going to make, and the like. What's, what's interesting about that, though, is I think about somebody like myself, and I think about the fact that I wasn't. it wasn't until I was 17 that I cared. Well, by then I would have taken a whole bunch of tests that said this guy's this guy's a moron. But yet, here I meet Jesus and now all of a sudden finish my PhD, right? That system would have never been able to recognize that. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I find IQ tests so so ridiculous in this conversation so ridiculous is because of my personal experience uh in the whole thing realizing that there is another aspect of what it means to be human that is not being accounted for within this. Is that making sense, guys? Yeah, it, it's that holistic view of the human being, right, in the proper context, right? And, and that's what I'm finding as I'm studying more and more, you know, what I'm seeing is, yeah, you, you have different aspects of who you are, but in order for us to make better sense of, you know, say Andy Steiger or Wesley Huff, I mean... I can't do that by just measuring your intelligence. I can't do that by looking at, you know, the, the this number of strands of hair, right? Like th- these are just all different aspects of you. But in order for me to have a, a view of you as a human being, I have to put you in that context of, okay, what's your story? What's your family like? Where do you come from? Who are you in the grand story that that God is playing out in this world, right? Those are the kinds of things that helps me actually make, enables me actually to make full sense of, a fuller sense of who you are, not just that one little thing. I think between the three of us, we should 
Yeah, we, we should be measuring uh, the strands of hair in our heads to see who's the most intelligent. Um, for the, list, for the listener, that, I'm the only one with hair. hair on my head at the moment. Yeah, and a full head um, of hair at that. Yeah, just to bring this full circle, why, in the context of what we've been talking about, why does something like the math curriculum, including... Uh, you know, a, a whole section, or at least originally including a whole section um, on why math is racist, why math is colonial. Why does that irk us in in the way that it does? Um, and why do you think that the people who incorporated it, why the opposite of that irked them in the way that it did in light of what we're talking about through, you know, both the secular and religious lens? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought us back to that because I think it's a good place for us to wrap up. I think it's important for us to appreciate that in the culture that that we live right now, it is this constant politicizing of of issues in which it's like, you know, you you do this, I do this, and and we have these constant extremes. You're going to push the extreme this way, I'm going to push the extreme the other way. So... Because there are these examples of uh, of people using math in racist ways, well, now we're going to have, you know, um, uh, a math that is gonna gonna be politically, you know, charged. That sure you'll do math, but you're gonna do social justice math, and that's honestly what if you listen to the interviews, that's what they're advocating for. It's a it's a social justice math that we're now going to have different math examples, if you will, that are going to remind us of of racism. It's going to remind us of people like Martin Luther King. It's going to, you know, it's going to remind us of, you know, you name it, whatever the, the, the ideology is or the idea that I want to push, I'm going to now use math and the examples we're going to use are all going to be politically pushing for, for this idea. And and I think this this is the problem that we're in. It's this constant pendulum swing of extremes, and in the and in the midst of all that, we are missing the actual problem. Uh, and we're just politicizing everything, but we're not dealing with the actual issues at play. One of the things I think that we we need to appreciate is that math is not racist. It can be used for racist ways, and it can be used to hurt people in different ways. But and it goes both ways. Uh, it could be used against black people. It could be used against white people. It could be used against Asian people. It, people can be racist. Uh, I do not buy uh, the idea that all people are are racist. The, this uh, critical race theory um, ideology that, depending upon the color of your skin, is going to determine whether or not you're racist or the like. Again, these ideas are, and we've talked about critical race theory before. We did an entire expedition, uh, literary expedition on it. It's on our website. You can hear what we've had to say on it. We've made Cole's notes on it uh, where we talk about it. But let, let me just bring this up real quick. I think this might be a good place for us to, to wrap this up. When we did critical race theory, there were some people that were really um, unsure about how to take us on that because we were we showed positive aspects of critical race theory and we showed negative aspects of it. We critiqued it. We did both. And and this this I think is just an example of that extremes of the pendulum, right? That to come at an issue and to be able to just identify where it could get things right, because in fact I think that that's what makes ideas 
the most dangerous is when they actually do have truth in them that needs to be understood, but then needs to be evaluated in this greater perspective that I can get a, a correct and holistic idea of what's taking place here, such that math being racist, for example, I can see the positive there. I can also critique the negative. And that in doing so, we we begin to find more of this middle position than swinging wildly on these political agendas from one side to the other and find ourselves in this more of this middle position that is uh, having more of a balanced perspective, seeing what is correct there, seeing what's not correct there, and being more honest about what's happening there as we as we move forward, particularly for myself as a Christian that holds uh, a Judeo-Christian worldview that all human beings are made in the image of God, and that there are greater aspects at play to a person than just simply reducing them to their biology. Well, listeners, uh, as you can imagine, there's a whole lot more that could be said on this topic. We will stop there. I hope that you have appreciated the show and that it's got you to think deeper on these important issues. I want to thank you for listening to the AC Podcast, and we will be back next week with more things to think about.